Hey there, this is Jason and Paul, and we encourage you to follow us on Instagram at stateofloveandtrust underscore pod, where we can continue the conversation with you. Thanks for listening. And now, let's get to the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the State of Love and Trust, a Pearl Jam podcast. I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi, and alongside me, as always, is... Paul Guglieri, healthy, alive, and well. Yes, you are. Last week, a little under the weather. You were, you were. I I, I am still under said weather. However, I am on the home stretch of recovery, or so I feel. Well, that's good. Well, Well enough to be enjoying this tasty ice cold beverage. Also what, known as what is it? Anderson Valley's Winter Solstice Seasonal Ale, the Christmas brew of choice, my friend. You know, you just told me that you bought 70, 70 of those beers for the holiday I, I, season. That, that might have been a conservative estimate, actually. <laughs> I want to be the guy who's ringing you up. Well, I, I went down to uh, is it BevMo? somewhere. Where'd you go? No, not BevMo. It was some uh, somewhere in Topanga Canyon. And... There, what it, were we doing by over the there? Way, I forget what the name of the place is, but it has an outstanding selection of uh, spirits and uh, Why were you over there? Because it's the only place that I oh, can so find this beer. I, I, I went there. everywhere. I couldn't find it. You, I used to find it at Ralph's. No longer. Then I would find it at Trader Joe's on occasion. No longer. Then I'd have to go to Bevmore, Vendome. Neither one of them have had it for months. Some didn't get it in at all. So I travel. I pick this. I go in there. And there's there's like four or five cases. Cases, uh-huh. mind you, uh-huh. in the back. And I just start grabbing them and loading them up. And at this point, they bring me a box, like the box that the shipping company would ship yeah. spirits in. So I'm loading all these six packs. They give you a pallet. Yeah, almost. And so <laughs> no forklift necessary, fortunately. So they're giving me this thing. And the guy looks, he says, you, you left one six pack there. I said, no, I'm going to leave that one there. Are you serious? You you literally clean this out of inventory. You're leaving one six pack there. It's like robbing a baby gap and leaving a single baby sock on a hanger. What are you doing? <laughs> Why a and baby I, gap? I don't know. That's that was my own analogy. He didn't actually say that to me, but uh, <laughs> that's a side note. Total okay. Side, uh-huh. Total side story sure. about when I used to work in retail. We're not going to bore the listeners oh, with now. that this week. Okay. That's next week. Good tease. Good tease. Exactly. So anyway, the last six pack is there. And uh-huh. I said, you know what? I'm going to leave that there because I guarantee you somebody else like me is hoping to find this here. <laughs> He's hoping to find six. Yeah. Well, something, right? And that person's going to come and that person will be thankful. It, it's the holidays. I can't take every single can. You're and, like, and you're the guy like, looks at me and he goes, I would have taken all of them, man. I'm like, well, you're a Scrooge. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you'd be the Scrooge until that guy has spoken and said that because <laughs> you, you took everything but just, just the crumbs. Then <laughs> just comes for one sad boy. Um, All right. I'm a Grinch, not a Scrooge. There's a difference. A Grinch, not a Scrooge. Okay. <laughs> what did the Grinch leave? You guys, I guess you have to. Tr- no, he Nothing. Not tree. even a small crumb for a mouse. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Guys, yeah, it is yeah. Christmas season, so we are it really diving deep here. Well, I'm drinking a, um, a Manhattan you featuring uh, Woodford Reserve bourbon today. My wife made this for me. And If uh, you'd like to hear more about the things that Jason and I drink. You should rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. You really should. Leave us a review of choice, Mm -hmm. a seasonal ale of choice. The ale will read, these idiots took like 10 minutes to finally get started the thing we actually listened to. You know what, Paul? This is called banter. People Mm -hmm. love some good banter. And that's what we're doing. We do it at the bottom of the show so often. Let's do it at the top of the show. And maybe some of those cash fans say, you know what? These guys, I, you know, I, I want to nestle it, kind of nestle into the ass groove of the chair. And while we're doing that, <laughs> yes, let me, yeah, yeah, to quote Homer Simpson, um, and, you know, really settle into the pod. You want to talk about some nonsense first before we dive into the good stuff, you know? Fair enough. Now, now you, you, were, in, you were in Solvang this weekend. It's a, it's yeah. a lovely Danish uh, town, uh, kind of by a little past Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. Danish capital of California. There you go. Windmills uh, and uh, I saw the photos. Everyone is having a great time. It and, seems. Yeah, it's it's a stunning, stunning locale. You saw you saw Santa Claus. Uh, we did. Yeah, we saw the tree lighting. 
in Solvang Park. We saw Santa. Very good. Very good. Uh, we also, like, actually, for a moment, I literally thought I saw Santa. I looked up and I saw Elon Musk's little string of satellites in the sky. Really? Did you see this? No. Yeah, I looked up. It was literally, it looked like a little uh, bead of jewels flying across the sky. Wow. And I, looked, I was with my kids. We looked up and they said, Daddy, what is that? The first thing that came out of, my, out of my mouth, unprompted, was, that's Santa. Well played. Their eyes lit up like the Christmas well tree behind me. Play. I'm telling you, I can't, I ever see, every year I say it, you are Clark Griswold. <laughs> you know exactly how to bring the cheer. To the last true family, man, Clark. The Yuletide, all of it. It's a beaut, Clark. It is a beaut. But with that, anyway. that's the show. <laughs> no. Okay. Seriously, now, let's get to it. Uh, a couple of Fridays ago, Many of you would have been privy to an audible original by our favorite singer, Edward Jerome Vetter, called I Am Mine. Uh, we are going to discuss some of the finer points of that uh, 85 or so minute journey um, through Ed's career with the band and some of the stories that he told. Uh, and then we're going to get into, you know, a lyric and life cut of the week, as we usually do. And maybe a little chat about uh, the new tour dates that Eddie dropped on us just the last week to promote Earthling that comes out in February. Mm-hmm. So audible. Um, I wrote down, I actually re-listened to it last night to try and re- re- refresh my brain of some of the okay. finer points. Yeah, I'm just going to go through a few things and we'll just kind of, kind of, you know, bang off, riff of off of you riff. Exactly. That's what I was looking for as if we were in a uh, deaf poetry slam riffing, right? No, what if I just keep snapping? Um, all right, so let's start at the beginning. Joe Strummer clearly is a very pivotal figure in this mm-hmm. whole story we call Pearl Jam. And Eddie mentions, you know, when he was down in the San Diego area, I believe Encinitas is actually where he was living, but then in the San Diego uh, area doing some work at the Bacchanal, which was a club in like a strip mall area. And he mentions, you know, meeting jack irons for the first time uh who was playing drums for joe on that tour i think either 89 or 1990 i think 1990 and he mentions how um he was a big fan of the peppers early stuff and actually asked uh if jack would listen to a tape to tell him whether or not it was jack or the other drummer mm-hmm. whose name, name escapes me isn't also it, thanked Jack for getting into the truck of a stranger at the time, right? Which, yeah, I mean, like that's what I'm saying. <laughs> right there, out of the gate, this may seem like a very innocuous, like why are they bringing this up. But like, if you're Jack Irons and you meet this guy for the first time, he's giving you bananas, like you know, because you asked for him. Like, okay, that's a regular roadie thing to do. Cool. Yeah. Hashtag. Let's let's all start the whole thing about <laughs> Jack loving bananas. Um, bananas. But like bananas. <laughs> I like bananas, but like, why is that a thing? Um, it was a big thing, apparently. Yeah, he, he brought him a whole another satchel of, bata- of bananas later on in the evening. How many bananas can you eat in one day? I can eat like maybe one. A guy, a guy needs his potassium. Potassium, vitamin K. <laughs> <laughs> so being invited into Eddie's, some stranger's truck to listen to a tape, you know, 2021, Jason and Paul would think, you know what? That sounds like a uh, like a trick to be murdered. And um I wouldn't do that necessarily. Now, maybe Eddie just came across as a as a nice guy and he wouldn't pull anything weird. Um, but how cool of it, cool of it, how cool of Jack to be like, yeah, no problem. I'll come check out this tape of yours. Answer his question because like, oh, that wasn't me playing the drums. But to indulge this young kid and to set off a relationship by indulging this inquisitive roadie at some strip mall, you know, gig spot. I find that like what a that could have gone a different way, and he, Eddie wouldn't have talked to talked to him again. I know, I, and we've explored the what if with Jack Irons before, but we yeah. never had this context, this background, right? This idea that you know a band cuts the power out of frustration <laughs> over getting paid, and here you have Eddie and Jack hanging out uh, out of the kindness of Jack's heart, and eventually, I'm not obviously we're going to do our best to not spoil too much of all this because yep. we want you the listener to also go purchase the audio book but uh through a series of events jack and eddie end up on this camping trip 
And all of it can be attributed back to Eddie's desire to see Joe Strummer, you know? And uh, it's interesting to see the indelible effect that one musician can have on another. Uh, you know, you go back to this idea that Eddie loved to be a part of Soundcheck. And to this day, you know, he mentions how sometimes Soundcheck is, is, is an even better experience in some ways than the show. There's just something so raw and organic about that experience in terms of, of, of trying to put together this. It's almost like rehearsals. I mean, I, I had a few occasions when I was in high school to participate in, uh, in some theater and uh (laughs) yeah i I wouldn't go that far but the the rehearsals just getting to know every the whole that whole process was infinitely more interesting to me than the actual performances themselves the performances were so fleeting but the rehearsals were just weeks and weeks of prep you know and so obviously sound check is not weeks and weeks of prep and the shows themselves are longer than sound check but there's something about just the intimacy of that and so i thought that it was a, a fascinating experience for eddie to really link himself to this idea that, you know, I was a roadie, but had I not felt the need to go hear soundcheck, I never would have found myself in this situation. And so sometimes it's almost like just, you know, being who you are, just you being you is ultimately what sets off this chain of events. And so Ed's going to attribute it to, to Joe Strummer and Jack Irons. But I think there's a compelling argument to say, actually, Ed, it's your desire to want to wanna go see a soundcheck actually is, is the reason that you ended up where you are today. It's funny you say that because later on in the episode, um, he mentions or talks about authenticity a lot. Yeah. Um, so yeah, his, his love for being around music, even though he had this graveyard shift as like a gas station, like security kind of guy, whatever. And he's talked about that before many times. He used to watch David Letterman all the time. And that was kind of his way of kind of getting through the night. But he, he did this gig at the Bacchanal just to be around music. He wasn't even paid. And uh, he just go there for tickets and to think that that love of music and just wanting to be around the process was enough uh, of serendipity to get him to meet these two people. Um, Jack, obviously specifically, and then, you know, the camping trip and the tape and everything is different. Uh, so I found that, I found that point to be very interesting. I, I also lo- liked hearing him talk about the magic number of, of 40,000 copies of 10 being being that was the thing that him and Jeff were really like, if they could get that, they'll get a chance to play live and maybe cut another record. Exactly. (laughs) He says something like, you know, if, if that's all it was, they could have played another 10 years of playing clubs. They've been happy with that. Like, can you imagine (laughs) them being a club band for like 10 years and then calling it a day? Just off living off that one album, you know, and whatever subsequent small time fry stuff they do. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, what are they? They cleared forty thousand in a couple of weeks. Are they? I mean, it was nuts. It, I mean, the, what it ended up selling? I mean, over ten million, I believe. I think, I think I'm pretty sure it's diamond at this point. And yeah. then obviously, versus blew it out of the water. But like, wow, that it's just it's funny to see how humble their mindset was. Because you think you know somebody like maybe a Dave would be like, I want to sell a million records. Like you have these aspirational dreams. Yeah, and that's cool. You should have this because it makes you reach. Um, as far as you can reach with your talents that you have available. But to say, you know, I know that I'm talented, but, you know, we could just sell 40,000. That'd be cool. What, you know, you mentioned, Dave, um, what I found interesting about this entire podcast were the sections Eddie chose to discuss, the way it was sequenced, and the parts of the band's history that, he didn't touch on or gloss, he didn't even gloss over. I mean, it was completely absent entirely. Albums even. So I wonder I, I though thought, how much of that is down to the producers. I, I don't know. I don't know how much was actually cut, um, but I, I thought it was interesting. There were things that I was wondering, you know, are, is he going to mine this territory or, right. or yeah. not, you know? Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, another point that he brought up that I found interesting was someone pointed out to him that he writes a lot of songs from a woman's perspective. Mm-hmm. And I guess I hadn't really thought about it myself either, but he kind of does. And he, he mentioned how he read a lot of plays as a young man, um, as many uh, as he would books. Uh, and in between plays, books, poems, music he, was, he listened to, he kind of always had strong female voices kind of around him. He said, they monopolized my list of top 10 favorite singers. Like, are you kidding me? 
not are you kidding me? Like, how could a woman be your top? Star? But like, when you think about the bands, they they always reference yeah, the, or the Clash, the Who, you know, the Who, you know yeah. Pink Floyd, Neil, the Beatles. Like, stuff. I don't. There's no women in there, but yet clearly in the recesses and the breadth of his artistic experience growing up, clearly he had those influences because they're they're all through the stories that he writes. Yeah, very much so. Um, Can you think and, of, a, of a of a singer, a male singer, that does as many songs from that perspective? Uh, gosh, that's a that's a great question. Off the top of my head, I cannot. Uh, it, it's it's a very it's it's a unique part of the process. Um, you know, one of my favorite books that I ever read, and one I enjoyed teaching the most, was The Outsiders by Sylvia Louise Hinton. And, you know, the, the editors at the time told her, we're going to change it to S.E. Hinton, because if anybody finds out that a book about a bunch of greasers in the early 60s with a lead character being a 14-year-old boy was re- actually written by a 16- or 15-year-old girl, yeah. I don't know if anyone's going to believe it's authentic. And I think that, that's what was so marvelous about the book, because all, all the main characters of the novel are, are teenage boys. And, but she wrote what she knew. I mean, she wrote a, a lot of these characters were based off of the people that she knew. And I think for Eddie, he was so, you know, he was raised by his mother for the most part because his, his dad was, was not in the picture. Right. Uh, not by choice, obviously. And, uh, you know, his stepfather wasn't the father to him that perhaps Ed needed. And in a lot of ways, I think Eddie really identified with that feminine point of view. <clears throat> his ability to identify with the femininity of, of his own identity because pardon me in a lot of ways we're all very much kind of masculine and feminine in our own ways you know and so yeah i think it's it's just an interesting dichotomy to think about the way eddie writes music uh you know you look at a song like hail hail you know are you woman enough to be my man there's still a, a lot of strong lyrical content in eddie's writing that isn't i'm not just talking about the songs that are predominantly female point of view you know, like a song like Daughter, you know, uh, Hail Hail isn't from a female's point of view, but Other there's still a, a, a strong feminine yeah. base to it. And so. Or supportive it's, it's, of women. <laughs> absolutely. You yeah. know, and <clears throat> I think what I what I appreciate about Eddie uh, taking that approach is he acknowledges the challenge and the uh, the great honor it is as a writer to to challenge yourself in that regard, to try and expand your voice and account for a voice that you, by nature, can never truly articulate. But it's the, the endeavor of attempting to do so that I think makes the process all the more noble. And, and I think he succeeds for all intents and purposes in most cases. Absolutely. Um, another point, I mentioned before that uh, being authentic was key at the mm-hmm. outset. Um, and he talks about that being, being a, a key to the band. Uh, he says when talk about songwriting that you have to keep your wounds open to be able to write at least at the time, yeah. but that doesn't help you and everything else in the business. Because if you keep yourself open, you keep yourself vulnerable. You're, you're, yeah. you're taking you're, advantage you're, you're of easily open to attack, which he was. Yes. <laughs> which we, which we all saw happening in 93, 94, 95, something like that. And yeah, I, I think it's interesting that he, mentions their their beings their stories being co-opted you know obviously there's the corduroy reference and that the other guys in the area like chris lane and kurt all felt very similar to this um and they would talk they would kind of joke about it amongst themselves this this co-op there people kind of okay amongst themselves but if you were an outsider not a lot to joke about it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it, i mean it makes sense i mean that to some degree it's a there's a tribal aspect to it sure of course and i think that you'll find that that spans across a lot of different sectors of of society i mean you'll find similar circumstances arise in groups of people who have suffered uh, a history of prejudice or oppression where oftentimes sure, they'll yeah. have ways of joking amongst each other but to have those from the outside make the same kinds of jokes is, is intolerable and unjust and, and understandably so. And so I, I think that uh, in many ways, it strengthened the bond between them 
as musicians, <clears throat> pardon me, but I don't think any of them necessarily, you know, wanted to have to ball in that way. You know, I think it was more of, of a coping mechanism than anything else. Yeah. And, and to skip a little forward ahead, he, he talks about, you know, when he heard Kurt um, overdosed in Rome and how he just was praying and hoping that he'd be okay. And he just couldn't think of a world without Kurt. Um, I think this is one of those. I really had a hard time wrapping my head around that. Why? Well, again, pardon me. I have a hard time finding a lot of positive things. Kurt Cobain ever said about Pearl Jam. In public. In public. I mean, you know, the, the one most famous prolific public, interview they had was where he's like, look, I don't, you know, I don't hate the guys. I just think their music sucks. You know I mean? But I, I, and you got Chris and and Dave snickering in the background. And so it's just this affinity that Eddie has for Kurt. And he mentions it in the audible, you know, Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had a couple of passing words with each other, you know, a couple of voicemails here and there. This idea that you would be so, emotionally afflicted by the loss of somebody that I, I, it's such an interesting, I'm curious. I'm approaching it from a place of curiosity. What was it about Kurt that Eddie found himself so uh, emotionally invested in Kurt? Well, I I don't, I don't, if I'm going to wager a guess, it's not that he had that, close of a relationship with Kurt. I think he looked at Kurt as the avatar for the success of everybody being able to get out of Seattle and be something. It may that, have been. If, if, Kurt, if Kurt and Nirvana didn't succeed, they don't, they don't pull everybody else up. For now, sure. I mean, so, so, so they, I'm, I'm assuming so they think. But I, I almost wonder if there wasn't a part of Eddie that always kind of wanted that certain level of acceptance from Kurt as a peer. Yeah, maybe. And I don't know if he ever, maybe he did. I hope he did. Cause I, he certainly is worthy of it, but I don't, I wonder if he, if he never felt he received it or if it was like un, unrequited type of a thing where, you know, he just hasn't been able to let go of that. I, I, I could just pure conjecture here. I'm not, and, and the last thing I'm doing is, is judging the man or the circumstances of the situation. I could be completely off base here. I just, <clears throat> it, I just found it really curious how much of an emotional investment he seemed to want to communicate through the audible, and yet how how very detached of a relationship he also articulated that he had with Kurt. It, it, you know, it's different with Chris or some of these other guys, but I, yeah, I mean, I wonder, I wonder what a is it partly what I said, him being an avatar, have been an example of what that could, could very well be all of could it. have been know. like, if he can go, I can go. Yeah. And not, not the same way, but like if their star could burn out, our star could burn out at any moment, basically the fragility, somebody yeah. as powerful or as untouchable as Kurt and Nirvana seemed at the time, if he could be fragile and mortal, then surely, you know, the, the more humble person that Eddie Vedder seemed to be, then I could certainly go away at any, any moment. And that, I think that yeah. freaked him out. Also, he mentioned that he is and was close to Dave and Chris. So it's possible that he, you take those things to kind of together. And that's why he felt compelled to, to feel that way. Yeah. It's all a possibility. Now he, he also mentions around this time, you know, this is, we mentioned him, the band, uh, being vulnerable and then being then, open to, I guess, attack for the lack of a better term. And he was kind of a recluse. He, he wouldn't leave his house um, after the second record. Uh, I think we've mentioned this before a, a little bit, but he talks about, you know, the house that he had at the time. He had this basement in there. He had a wine cellar. He was yeah. doing pinball. weird shit, like drawn on the walls, playing exactly playing pinball, <laughs> hanging out by himself with some typewriters. He barely leave the house, but he gets a pack of smokes. Like this is, it's kind of strange, but I guess it's, it was sort of necessary for self-preservation at the time, uh, especially from a mental health standpoint. I, I actually get that when when I'm kind of feeling, you know, um, I'm terrible with finding the right words sometimes. But like when things are kind of closing in on you, you feel very stressed, or there's a lot of a lot of things coming at you from all different angles of life. 
I really enjoy my solitude. I need to, I need the silence. I need to be kind of with my own thoughts and that's how I can handle. So I get it. Um, and I, I don't know how you, how you, uh, approach to that part of his, I, I, I found it very relatable mm. uh, as somebody who, uh, I wouldn't, uh, I'm going to sit here and fashion myself as an artist, but I mean, I, I go do, ahead fashion. I, <laughs> I mean, look, I, 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 I'll dabble in guitar. I do draw. Um, I love to write. You draw? You know? hold, on, hold, yeah. on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You draw? I do. Yeah. Can we the, see the, some of the art? The next time you come over to enjoy an Anderson Valley winter solstice oh, season, I am mail, fucking there next week. I will. I will show you some of my uh, my sketches. We, <laughs> is any of it? Is any? Is any of it like post worthy? Uh, I got. Uh, is can that we really get from? Is, hey, is that my call? And, come and on. second question. Second question. Can we get a 2021 Christmas original? <laughs> it's been years since I've drawn anything new, but uh, Paul, 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 Paul. <laughs> Point is, okay, I can relate to this need for uh, solitude. Mm. However, what I what I was most drawn to was when he spoke about the, the how that dynamic changes when you have children. Oh, now, yes. once he had once his, his daughter was born, how all that changed for him, and how it was no longer you know. I need to do me, you know, I'm the, I'm the artist and, and this is my process and, and this is what I'm going to do. And ev- everybody else around me needs to compromise and bend to that. It was more, no, I'm going to bend to my new circumstances. And he prioritized his daughter over that and said, you know what? Nine o'clock kids are down. I got an hour. You know yeah, what I mean? I, that was interesting. <laughs> I thought that was fascinating, and, but he talked about the efficiency and how he, he was able to condense and focus. I thought that was so inspiring because so many of us who have these various pursuits find ourselves struggling to find the time to do these types of things, you know, and, and there is time. It's just to Eddie's point, condensed and filtered. And oftentimes, yeah. you know, it, it, it's on you to make the most of the moments that you do have provided that you make your children, you know, your family a priority. And if you're able to do that, then you can balance that with, taking that free time and not squandering it, then you won't feel resentment or bitterness and want to take it from these other outlets. You know what I mean? Right. And so I had a lot of respect for his ability to, to admit that that was a struggle, first of all, but also to so freely give himself over to what should be a natural solution for anybody who becomes a parent. Well, and, and, but, but at the same time, acknowledging that it, there's, a, there's a, you know, it's a process that you have to adjust to. If you have a natural inclination um, as an artistic person to have a certain process that yields results. Successful, mind you, for him. <laughs> Very yeah, outrageously it's, successful. It's, it's probably hard to readjust. I mean, this is kind of what he said. He goes, the trickiest thing about kids is you have to be conscious that you have a natural compunction that you're going to be a mad scientist. You'll have your best work if you're out to sea, kind of getting lost. And you can't do that if you're a parent. You need to stay close to shore if you're needed. So you have to find new ways to be inspired. You can't pontificate. It forces you to concentrate the process. And he says he doesn't want to have regrets as a parent. That's I think that's where you work yourself backwards from. You want to, especially coming from his situation where he didn't have an actual dad and he learned about that person later and they were already gone. So he couldn't have the, the discussion. And so the discussion that he has is through release. And, you know, the guy that was playing the part of his dad was an okay dude, but like whatever. He was mad at his mom, but then he made up all these different facets. He just wanted to have a, a the kind of upbringing that he didn't have to his yeah. kids. And he, so, yeah, as soon as he had his first daughter, Olivia, that was, he had to change it up. And it's natural for Ed to use an oceanic reference <laughs> metaphor <laughs> out to sea and having to be whoop, not past the buoys, guys. Um, so you can get back just in case. And, you know, <laughs> we, we tell, we know, we know how this works. You know, we right. usually plan these podcasts around when the kids are going to bed. Yeah, okay. Sure do. I've got an hour. <laughs> hey, yeah. we're going to be, intri- we're going to be uh, interviewing black circle in just a little bit of time here. next, I think next week, two weeks from now. And uh, we, we, we did it around my son's nap schedule. schedule. Let's be honest. Got <laughs> like, it real. And much love to the guys down in, uh, down in Brazil for that. Because yeah, <laughs> we were like, is six o'clock good for you? Rio time. They're like, yeah, no problem. So uh, that's coming by the way. And, uh, yeah, I, I too appreciated him talking about that, 
interesting how, how things change. And that was around obviously the year 2000, 2001. Uh-huh. What also happened around the time, of course, though, is, is Ross killed. And, um, that was obviously not a happy time. And he, he talks about how, um, it really, really shook the band. Uh, obviously everyone t- in varying degrees, he does, does mention that, um, it was really difficult for one band member who at the time for a little bit questioned whether they should play at all ever again. Um, I, I think you could probably deduce and surmise that that person was Jeff. Um, if you look back to the summer of 2020, when Jeff was interviewed about touring and the postponement of the Gigaton tour, he talks about how apprehensive he was to play inside, uh, that he didn't want to do, uh, the COVID card, you know, license to get into the show, which of course that ended up happening for Ohana, but at least it was outside. So, you know, you can put two and two together and, and think that it, it was most likely Jeff, the, 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 that was the one that was a little um, extra freaked out by that. And, and of course, you know, that's nothing to be ashamed of considering what happened. But the, the, the interesting thing for me wasn't obviously talking about that, although that was an interesting point that one person was questioning that. It was how they kind of came back from it. And obviously they canceled the remaining couple of dates on the, on the European tour, but they did have the final leg of the U.S. tour about a month later, starting August 3rd in Virginia Beach. And he talks about how they were at a dinner the night before the show, and it was all of a sudden just weather. Right, right, as we call it out here. Anything that's not sunshine is weather <laughs> in California. So it was just thundering, lightning, hail, rain, pissing down. And it yeah. kind of freaked everybody out because, of course, an outdoor venue, I think it was an amphitheater, so it's going to be a lawn area, is going to be slick, muddy. And, you know, boom, you know, that's going to um, little PTSD action happening there. But the show went on. But he talks about how he went back to the hotel room and used that mindset, shifted around, and wrote I am mine. Yeah, that is an incredible circumstance to take something so negative and so apprehensive and turn it into the song that became I Am Mine. Yeah, I thought it was profound on a lot of levels. Uh, It was a redemptive moment Mm. for him as a songwriter and for the band as a whole. And, uh, you know, you start it was hard for me to listen to this and not start, you know, drawing parallels to uh, to the Queen biopic that had um, Mm that had just come out a couple a year or two ago. And I was thinking how cinematic this would be, you know, this idea of Ross Guild and, and how, you know, this is the denouement or, you know, the dark night of the soul moment in the script. And then, you know, the upswing here is when they, uh, they're sitting there and they're getting ready to play their first show and then it's storming outside and you just have, you know, the, these traumatic flashbacks of just people getting trampled in mud and, and, it, and how the the hesitancy, you know, and then uh, how they were able to rise above all that. And uh, speaking of rise, I uh, I found the song selections really interesting in the audible. Yes, and the uh, and the arrangement of Better Man was odd, which was gorgeous, by the way. I thought it was a fantastic rendition. I didn't know what was coming, and I looked at the phone. And I was like, Better Man. And he obviously was sung differently too. So if you haven't listened to this, guys, you should check it out just for that. That was very interesting. But yeah, it, it, he kind of went down the um, down the list chronologically until they kind of hit the late nineties, and they kind of jumped around a little bit, did a couple of into the wild songs. But um, that, I think those are any any other points that you wanted to. I, talk I just want to chat very briefly about "Soon Forget." Oh, let's do. It. Let's play. This is a song that, to me, when I first heard it. If it didn't elicit a sideways glance for me when I first heard Binaural, I don't know what would happen. Well, have, you ever heard, I, have, you, have you ever heard a popular song with uke before? Uh, I, don't, no, I don't think I, I had. It's a rock band. Binaural comes out, and I hear a ukulele. I'm like, what is it? I yeah. mean, and the more I would research the backstory of it in terms of, uh, you know, the homage and all that kind of stuff, it, I, I, I get it. I, I know. I like Pete Towns, and I like The Who as well, but I, there was something so fascinating to me about the context by which the song appears in the audible when it's considered within relation of the surrounding circumstances of what was going on in the life of the band at the time. And that song was very specifically chosen. And it's almost the type of thing where you 
it's hard to imagine that song not on the catalog now. It really is. There's something very personal about that track. And I find it to be a very um, dynamic reflection on a part of the band's history and something that Eddie was going through as a songwriter. And it's a pivotal moment of his growth and development as a songwriter. And we talk about what Eddie sounds like on a piano now. Well, that was the first song he ever wrote with a ukulele in his hands. And uh, I, I think that that's an important a seminal moment. I use that word a lot on the show, but that, that was an important moment. And, you know, it, not every, I, I'll, I lump myself into this group. Not everybody was ready for that when we first heard it. Yeah. Uh, but looking back on it now, I think that uh, there's, there's a much greater appreciation for its place as a song within the catalog than, than I had had before. I find it interesting that where, where it came from, he talks about how the band was firing on all cylinders creatively and collaboratively that if, if he kept on writing normal riffs or ideas on the guitar, that he would never get to keep up because they would, they so, would be working on stuff and he had all this stuff they would get back like the Mac plug. So he so put he a more guitar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no more guitar. We're done with guitar for a while, which is interesting because that was around the binaural sessions. Yeah. And so you think about like, Oh, all the ideas that you guys thought were as a group really like crushing ended up becoming binaural. And then some of those maybe tri- trickled down to, uh, to riot act. And so that's where he wrote basically all of the uke songs, as he mentioned was, was around that time. They were just yeah. sitting there for nearly a decade. And he's on record as saying he still to this day, doesn't understand why that record just didn't resonate with people binaural. I, I, I like really think there's a great affinity for a lot of the music of that era from both uh, Eddie and the rest of the guys as well. And it just, <coughs> pardon me, it, it, for whatever reason, it just didn't resonate. I, I don't think there's a lot of hooks on that album. It, it, it's very brooding and dark. Mm-hmm. And uh, the chord progression, it's, it's, not, it's not a conventional pop rock album by any stretch of the imagination. It just doesn't have those types of harmonies and hooks and grooves that you, I think a lot of folks were accustomed to hearing with the, uh, Pearl Jam's music. Well, yeah, coming off of Yield, there there definitely yeah. was uh, okay. We always talk about Renaissance or Return to Form and all that crap, but there there was something c- coming back to a sense of hook laden rock and roll for the most part on Yield. There's a lot of that there, and that kind of disappeared in the next couple of albums. Well, they were upset point. again. They had something to be pissed about, for lack of a better way of, of phrasing yeah. it. If you go back to the politics of the time, and and I think that they felt like they had been able to channel something that had informed a lot of who they were as a band in years prior. And I wonder if it's, uh, I have to imagine that if they're looking at like the Spotify numbers and saying, Hey, those two albums are just not getting a lot of play. So I guess we're not going to play as much from them as we would necessarily want to. Maybe they think, fuck, we'd like to play a couple of extra binaural tracks each, each show. But you know, if we're limited to, two and a half hours and we know we want to play the new stuff and then you've got to play some of those hits and now we've got a lot of records that have hits and where do you slot those little gems in it'd be interesting to hear some of those songs rearrange one day like a like a like a garden kind of rearrange uh, yeah i there's there's enough on binaural there's so much from that session and the band clearly liked a lot of the material i it just I'd be really fascinated you know, to see what happens if what uh, we if will do ever... one day is I don't know when this is going to happen. Maybe maybe we'll do it in honor of when the when the tour returns in May, which will be about our two year reunion. By the way, mm-hmm. um, maybe we'll do a, a pick your one night only set list with a with a nice cap at like you know thirty or something like that, and we'll see we'll see if we're still feeling some of this early two thousands love and sprinkling extra couple of songs that maybe the band wouldn't necessarily have in there. And, and I know you guys love doing, you know, fake set lists too. So that'll be something down the road. That we'll well, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm going to give away a question. I'm going to ask the guys from black circle. I'm going to give it Ooh, away. Okay. Right now. Yeah. I was so in love with their version of uh brain of Jay. Oh yes. Because of how they rearranged the opening. Uh-huh. Of it. I would love to hear from the guys. If they could pick one song off of binaural to rearrange and kind of make their own to a degree. What song would that be? Matter of fact, I might even issue that challenge to them. Well, maybe I should. Should I? Should we ask them beforehand so they maybe they can do it? They have I don't a few know. days. I don't know. Okay, maybe. I mean, they have a new album to learn. Yeah. Play, so, but, 
<laughs> got anyway. better things to worry about than <laughs> my shenanigans. <laughs> um, one, one thing I do want to bring up just before we get to our lyric of the week is um, I, we mentioned obviously Eddie's new album finally coming out February 17th, uh-huh. Earthling. Uh, we've heard a couple of tracks so far off of it. And there is an accompanying, I guess you could call it a tour. It's like six dates, uh, a couple in New York, New Jersey, Chicago, two in Seattle. LA and San Diego, I want to say. I think that's it. And um, that's great. I, I did put in a request for a couple of LA tickets. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. But a, a friend of mine texted me and asked me just flat out, what, what, do you, what do you make of this Eddie tour? And I was like, oh, you know, um, I'm glad he's doing some shows. It'd be fun to see him again uh, when he has more than just an hour to play. And, uh, I mean, tickets are expensive, which sucks, but you know, he's at the point in his career where he can pull the Billy Joel and Tom Petty card and charge adult ticket prices. Cause that's where we're at and you know, hashtag inflation. So there's all those <laughs> things that come into play. I was like, that kind of sucks, but you know, it is what it is. And he goes, well, you know, I've been kind of like tooling around, tooling around online and I've been noticing that there is some angst and some annoyance at how Eddie without much fanfare or issue has scheduled a tour inside by himself. Well, not by himself, but with his band, uh, kind of within just, you know, a few months of announcing that there's an album out. And yet we have been waiting for a, uh, rescheduling of that first leg of Gigaton shows. It'll be just about two years uh, in a couple of months. And we just learned that they will be rescheduled early next year. We'll know the dates and that they'll be starting in May. And he goes, how is that? How is that possible when they've played shows, albeit outside other bands have been playing inside for the last six months. You can do a, Vax card check at the door and, you know, negative COVID test, try and keep things as safe as possible. I've been to three or four shows with that, where that's happened. No problems. And like, what, what's the problem? Why, why are they, why are they waiting so long? Why is Eddie so easily able to get out there? And the band doesn't seem to be able to get this going on. And so if you kind of try and play detective and piece together some dots, and I mentioned it earlier in the show, it seems that Jeff Ament would be, the culprit here as to being the one who is kind of holding this up. And so his point was, and what he's been seeing is why is the rest of the band allowing or putting up with whatever you want to say, uh, Jeff to kind of take the whole band in this tour hostage. If he's the one that's super cautious and unsure about being back inside a building and listen, I get it. You know, so everyone has, you know, I still see people walking by themselves with a mask on outside. I'm like, guys, you can you, you can take it off. You're walking by yourself. But I but you know, some people are like that. But but to hold up a tour, to hold up four other guys in the band, you know, one one against five or one against four, I should say, um, that's a little annoying. And it's not like you know, a bass player isn't quote unquote replaceable. Again, his words, not mine. And you know, uh, the stones are playing without Charlie Charlie Watts, and when Bon Scott died, ACDC moved on. And yada, 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 yada. He's listing other people, other bands that moved on. You know, even just for one tour, he has to sit it out because he's not. And so I, I pose a question to you, Paul. Have you considered this conundrum? Have you considered the idea that it's frustrating that perhaps if it's true that Jeff is the one holding this thing up while other bands, including Edding by himself, are just are popping out there? That was me blowing my nose. And no, you should not edit that out because that is what I think of that question. (laughs) Now, look, here's the deal. Uh, Let's not not pretend these are apples to apples here. I think coordinating a Pearl Jam tour is a heck of a lot greater of an undertaking with a much bigger carbon footprint, obviously, than Eddie doing a solo show in in some indoor arenas. I'm sorry, uh, clubs, really. I mean, he's not going to be doing an arena. So... I understand the grievance. I understand the frustration. And any fan has a right to be aggrieved or, or frustrated because that's just a basic 
right that you have. You know what I mean? I'm not going to tell you, you don't have the right to be upset. You, of course you have the right to be upset if that's what you want to feel. I don't find it to be particularly productive. Uh, I, I don't personally agree with it mostly because I think that, uh, if I'm going to see a Pearl Jam, so I, I want to see everybody in the band there. Number one, uh, there are so many songs that Jeff does and is such an integral part of that. We had a whole show talking about the, the best songs that Jeff has done. And, and we marveled at how huge of a piece of this band he is. This, this was a Jeff and stone band before it was ever an 80 band. Yeah. This idea that Pearl Jam would go on without Jeff to me is, is uh, to me, he's not an arbitrary member of the band. And I'm not saying that, you know, the gentleman who, who was sharing these frustrations with you is necessarily suggesting that, but uh, it, it's, it's not as simple to me. Um, I really feel as though, can you imagine the band trying to play one of his songs and it, it, would they be laced with guilt for doing so? Would he be frustrated and say, you guys are going to go play fine. Don't play my song. I mean, that, is it worth that kind of a riff? I, I don't necessarily think that it is. I think when Jeff is ready, then the, the band will be ready. It's, it's all for one or one for all type of a thing, you know, five against one and a whole album revolving around that concept. And so it's the, the last thing that I would ever want to see is Pearl Jam find itself coming apart at the seams because of the fans it was one thing when it was the industry. Yeah. But if they ever found themselves pushed to the brink because of us, then shame on us for that. So I, I, I think that uh, we'll get Pearl Jam when they're good and ready and, and they'll bring their a game like they did at Ohana, you know, after a couple of shows of getting warm. <laughs> but Look, I mean, didn't stop them from pushing out a new album. Uh, it's not stopping them from writing more music, from, from expanding their creative horizons and, and testing their boundaries and, and the limits of what they can do creatively. I mean, yeah, <clears throat> pardon me. I want to see them live just as much as you do. I, I want that show back. I really, really do. But on the same token, I respect the fact that they're the ones that have to go up there and play these songs, you know? So... Uh, it, it, it's, it's more complicated to me than that. And uh, in the meantime, I'm grateful for all these little, uh, these little interludes that we keep getting, whether it's new music from one band member or another, or, or in this case, a show from Ed. I, I think that it's, uh, it's all part of the experience. Uh, I think I would agree with you. Um, I really did appreciate his point of view um, in that, sure. that argument because I had actually thought of it. And I was like, huh, okay, yeah, no, I see. I mean, and, and to somebody who may not be as uh, invested in the intricacies in the history of the band like we and, and many of you guys listening are, uh, yeah, Jeff is not just a bass player. Uh, you, you might say, like, pick a band out of the sky, and, you know, if it's not the singer – you know, oh, they're replaceable because anybody can play a guitar that would sound more or less like, well, yeah. And it's hard to, you can't really just replace a singer because you can't, everyone sings differently. And How do you, you could, quantify the input Jeff has in that's the, the thing. process it's like, of these albums? Not I mean, only is there a way to play the songs that, that's, that, it, that is character, characteristically unique to a, a certain player, A, but two, because of what he's done for the band and how the band has grown from, from him and stone, it doesn't make sense to, to trivialize that and just say, ah, oh, well, you know, because he doesn't sing, we're not going to notice him missing. So let's let him sit it, sit it out. It's like, it, it's a, it's a slap in the face. It'd be like, I could see him going back to how he felt when they started the no code sessions in Chicago and he didn't realize it. Like, he'd be like, what the fuck is this? And want to and want to walk, and there's no reason to, especially at 55, 56 years old, to have to to be like that. I mean, these guys have been through everything together, and I don't see it happening. Uh, and I don't think it's a worthwhile thing to do. Thirty-one years in, so you know, I appreciate the argument, but if I've waited two years, what's another couple of months? Yeah. I'm with you. All right, let's get to our lyric of the week. All 
All right, that lyric of the week is not from an album, Paul. It comes from the sessions of Riot Act, and it's down. Okay, Paul, talking down. I've actually been uh, curious to do this one for a while, and uh, we haven't had we haven't done a a non album track in a little bit. So here we are with down. What do you got? Uh, I love that line. You can't be neutral on a moving train. I think well, that th- uh, thanks, uh, <laughs> Howard's in right. Yeah, yeah, and uh, the, the self deprecating nature of the lyrics too. You know, hope could grow from dirt like me can be done. Um, I don't know how inspiring of a, of, of a, you know, message that is, but the first line, I think certainly more so, uh, life is in motion, you know, stasis is death. And I think that these lyrics do a marvelous job of, of really capturing the idea that you, you can't just be indifferent. You can't just stand off to the side and live in an echo chamber or lock yourself away and hibernate and pretend like the world is not going to keep moving on without you and policy will change and you'll find yourself having your very way of life being dictated to you at one point and you'll look up and you'll say how did this happen where did this injustice come from and it'll it'll likely be in, in many cases because you and many others like you stood by and did nothing while it was brewing when you had the opportunity to exercise your vote or your right to, to act, if we don't make it a point to address those injustices or uh, the things that frustrate us or that we find oppressive or that we find uh, cause us to, to, to be disjointed, the reality is that uh, over time, those things will find themselves governing us. And, and if we, if we let that happen, we have no one else but ourselves to blame. So I, I think, uh, it's a very effective message. Life moves on and you must move with it. You said it stasis yeah. is death. Um, you cannot let yourself get bogged down or stuck by the negativity in this world. And you can't let your past dictate your future. Let it guide your future choices with acquired wisdom. I think that's the, that's the key rub there. Yeah. And, you know, I, I guess have hope that if you believe in yourself, you can overcome any darkness. And I love the dichotomy of the two verses, right? There's the down and then there's the rise. It's very simple, but it works. Yeah. And, and so many of us are stuck somewhere in life from something internally or from external factors or some combination of the both. And you can't let those things control your narrative. Yet you, you right. have to, you still have choices to make and you must use your experiences to guide you past the bullshit into a brighter more fulfilling future. And if you can do it with self-deprecation and a little bit of silly sarcasm um, and not take those serious things too seriously, I think you can get through it. And uh, I always thought this was just a very succinct way of saying that. It's a, it's a great message and, and a fun song. Agreed. Underrated classic. Exactly. Let's go to our live cut of the week. All right, Paul, so live cut. Where are we going for down? You know, my friend, we're going back to Mansfield. Yes. I think it's uh, one of those pivotal shows back in uh, 2003. And uh, uh, I mean, if you don't own this show and you're a Pearl Jam fan, it's an absolute must have. But this this particular show is one one of the longer shows I think they've done in their history. And uh, this particular version of down, I think it was, you know, it's arguably the, the best show of that tour. So unsurprisingly, when they, they break out a rarity like this, uh, it, it's going to be one of the better versions of it. I thought they brought, uh, they, 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 they do a great justice to this track during this live performance. Well, let's go to Mansfield, Massachusetts on July 11th, 2003, no, 2003, pardon me. Yep. 
I love the extended intro and I love the, this is for Howard Zinn, by the way, still alive at the time. And it just got a great energy to it. There's a, there's a jump to it. And I think it was funny that he did the, uh, the lyric change to, I think I'll throw these cigarettes away. (laughs) Do it, Ed, save your voice. Save it, Ed. (laughs) And, And the band is really tight, which again, obviously if you guys know that was night three of three, uh, where they tried to play everything at the, at the time. They yeah. even did that that like an hour or so long preset, and the opening band came on and they played another two yeah. and a half hours. So a wonderful night. Um, it's easy to probably pull uh, a best version, a live cut from there because they were so on it that night, and they generally are when they're in Mansfield. Ninety eight is no no exception, and um, yeah, easy choice. Yep. There it is, guys. Uh, Hope you enjoyed that episode, and we will be back with you next time with our friends from Black Circle. Looking forward to it. I'm very excited. And Paul will ask his his question. I will ask ask him a question. (laughs) And if you have any questions for Black Circle, let us know, and we'll ask Yeah. Maybe we'll open up the mailbag. The the radio... Actually, I don't know about that, because the getting anything down to Rio via the post is incredibly expensive and it, it'll get stuck. I can tell you right now, it'll get stuck in the post and then it'll force the guys to go and pay a tax to get it out. So Fair enough. maybe we don't do that, but like a virtual one. That way. <laughs> All right, gang. Thank you for listening again. Uh, like us on social media. Of course, I hate saying that, but you got to do it. You know, uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook continue the conversation there as I said at the top of the show and that we recorded a bit pre-recorded a bit and feed the algorithm as Paul always says and until until we talk to you guys next week with our friends from Rio you'll be listening to The State of Love and Trust Peace